The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The youngest we met was 10 years old. We we spoke to them. It was very unclear, as I say, why they were there. Because when the, the battlefield was cleared, of course, some people went to camps and some people went to prisons. No one appears to know why. And they were certainly in a state of distress. One of them asked us privately if we could help them be, be moved to a child-only cell. There were rumors at the time that there was uh, sexual violence against the young boys. Subsequently, that did happen. The the boys in the North Wing, the, the miners who are in the North Wing where the standoff have been, have been moved there, kind of out of sight from the media, precisely because there was an outcry after this that, that there were kids in the general population. But yeah, as I say, it's a pretty desolate place and one where you really feel that the world has turned its back. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, January 28th, 2022. Late last week and early this week saw fighting between Islamic State fighters and Syrian Democratic forces after the Islamic State attempted a jailbreak of a Kurdish prison containing significant numbers of alleged Islamic State fighters. The makeshift jail housed Syrians, Iraqis, but also alleged fighters from Western Europe and North Africa. It's the most significant jailbreak since ISIS territorial defeat and a major national security story that's gone under the radar. To talk it all through, to think about the scale of the damage and all the things that led to us getting to this point, I talked with Leah West, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University, and Louisa Lovelock, the Baghdad Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. We broke down what's happened so far and what to make of it all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 28th, an Islamic State jailbreak. All right, so Leah, before we get into what happened this past week, let's talk a bit about this prison. So what is the prison? Where is it? And give us sort of a vague sense of who's in it and in normal times, who controls it, right? So we'll get into the specifics of all this as we go along, but just in the way of background. So we're talking about the Sinai prison, which is located in the Guerin district of Helsinki City, which is a large city in northeastern Syria. So it's often referred to as Guerin Prison or Helsinki uh, for that reason. It's basically the old campus of a university. And the buildings have been used as a makeshift prison essentially since the fall of Bagus in March 2018. So they started housing combatants that they were taking off the battlefield as 
um, people were surrendering or being captured and using these uh, this old university to house prisoners. The estimates are that it's housed between three and 5,000 people at various times, you know, mostly ISIS-linked prisoners, but there are also young boys being um, housed there. So those that were old enough that they didn't, that uh, the SDF made the decision, so the Security and Defense Forces, they didn't want to house them in the camps with mothers, but not so old that they, you know, they are children. So um, there's a mix of men and boys And these are makeshift prisons. So you have to think of it as, you know, large kind of classrooms or rooms um, where people are living in rooms of 20 to 40 people, um, mostly living, sleeping on the ground, etc. It's not what we think of when we think about a regular prison. All right. So, Louisa, with that in mind, could you walk us through everything that's happened last week? So, there's been a lot and there's been a lot of small details and I, I think we're still sort of figuring out some of the stuff, but just give us a rough TikTok of how things have evolved over the course of the past week. So this attack started, we think, late Thursday or in the very early hours of Friday morning with with a car bomb, we think, on the western side of the prison, which, as Leo says, is, you know, it's it's a school and a makeshift prison. It was never meant to be a secure facility. When the car bomb went off, as has happened on several previous occasions, the prisoners inside, the the guards say, they effectively started to riot. They thought that people were coming to rescue them. Some of them may have thought that members of the Islamic State had come as promised to rescue them. And the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, say that their staff were overpowered. Some of them were killed. It looks like some of their phones were taken and those phones were subsequently used to, to get messages and films out of the prison by the prisoners. Now, the standoff that ensued as the SDF went in lasted for six days. And for the most part, I have to say it has taken part in, taken place in something of a media blackout. We've been reliant on the US-backed SDF who are doing the fighting for news, and it has been difficult to cross-check things. So some of our understandings might change. But what we do understand is that in the final days, this basically was a standoff in the northern wing. And the northern wing is where these, these miners are. As, as Leo says, you've had these miners in this prison for almost three years now. I went there in 2019. I met a bunch of them. And it's very unclear, to be honest, why a lot of them are, are there. Some of them have come from the camps and have come, you know, at the, after the age of 12, they've been separated from their mothers. But others were just picked up in Bagus right at the end of the operations. And it's not clear what the SDF thought they were doing, but this is where they were. So they ended up sort of at the center of this siege where the SDF will say that the alleged ISIS militants, and I should say alleged because we, we don't know who's in there, were sort of holed up in that place. And there was something of a firefight. Grenades were thrown. Snipers were used all around to try and kill the militants. And then day by day, they negotiated the end of the standoff. And as of now, this is Wednesday evening, Iraq and Syria time, it looks like that standoff has ended. But the damage is certainly very unclear. We've seen early photographs which suggest there is pretty extensive damage to parts of the prison, suggest it might not be used again, but we don't know the death toll. We don't know how many people have escaped. And yeah, I mean, a lot is very unclear. And over the course of the past week, were there moments where it seemed like this was going to end particularly poorly, right? So as of recording, we're recording Wednesday late morning Eastern time. It seems like 
the SDF has taken back control of the prison. But were there moments over the course of the past week where that seemed like that might not be the end result? Absolutely. And even now that we're hearing from the SDF that it's over, we're hearing from other people that you sh- we should just sort of hold, we should wait and we should see what happened. Because when you have a negotiated standoff that, that has been as nasty as it has been around around minors, you know, around people who effectively sound like they became human shields. I think there was great concern that this just might go completely wrong and a lot more people might be killed. You know, the SDF are a US partner force. Uh, the US-led coalition will praise their, uh, their capabilities routinely. But a lot of them are still not particularly well trained. They're certainly not trained for a hostage situation. And I think that you know, you say, was there a moment or were there moments? There were many moments and they were probably coming six, seven, 12 times a day. And so do we have any sense of how many people actually made it out of the prison, right? So I would assume that among other things, the objective of the prison break was literally to, you know, liberate ISIS detainees from captivity. Right. I mean, SDF officials are saying that there are probably the people who have escaped are in the low dozens. But of course, if they've got out, they might have got to the local neighborhood and combing operations are certainly going on in the houses. So it's not clear of those dozens of people, how many, for example, have been recaptured, how many have been killed. I think this is one of these things that really isn't going to come out until the dust settles. But I think a really good point that Leah makes is that, you know, she said there are between three and five thousand people in this prison. That is an incredibly ambiguous range of numbers, and there is very little transparency around who is in there. So when the final headcount comes, you know, it's possible to question if they'll really know how many people are gone. And Leah had mentioned, too, that the prison, it's not just a prison isolated in the middle of nowhere. It's a prison within the, you know, the broader confines of a city. Do we have a, any idea of how much the fightings are spilled out into the city and affected people living in in the area surrounding the prison? Yeah, I mean, it certainly spilled out into the surrounding neighborhoods. The sort of the three adjacent neighborhoods appear to have had clashes in them. The SDF secured a security perimeter relatively early and appears to have evacuated people from their houses during that time. So, you know, we haven't had much visibility on what's been going on purely because, you know, they've really tried to lock it down. But from what they say, clashes have been ongoing. And as of tonight, even though they say the prison is back under control, it sounds like there's still low-level fighting in one of the adjacent neighborhoods, at least. All right. So I want to back up a little bit here and, and think about this in a broader lens. So Leah, did this feel like a, an exceptional event to you? Like how rare is something like this? I, I know there's been some instability in the prison and in other SDF prisons over the course of the past couple of years, but this this felt different, right? And give us a sense of why that is. Yes and no. <laughs> if we want to go really broad context, terrorist organizations breaking their people out of prisons is, uh, you know, pretty par for the course. Um, but in in terms of a Syria, northeastern Syria, we've actually seen kind of increased efforts to break men out of these prisons. So there have been incidents inside the prison um, dating back to March 2020, where prisoners inside the prison were using makeshift weapons to, to, you know, take security officers hostage and creating a lot of damage. There's been several instances of that in 2020. And then over the course of 2021, we heard from kind of internal counterterrorism forces inside Syria that they were thwarting plans 
from outside groups, so people outside the prison, uh, ISIS, sleeper cells, et cetera, who were planning to coordinate attacks um, and escape attempts on the prison. Even as recently as December of 2021, we were hearing that there were raids um, and that you know the, the chief planner of an attack had been captured. So, you know, it started with the internal riots. Obviously, when you have thousands of people in a makeshift style prison um, and who knows how many actual internal security folks um, and you're dealing with um, environments that were not designed to be prisons, you know, lots of lots of instability inside. But now we're seeing more and more attempts to break people out and finally, you know, a successful attack. But we've also seen attacks on the camps and breakouts in the camps. And I, I hear I'm talking about a whole in particular. We've seen rioting in the camps as well. And, and you know, there was one camp, not a whole, a smaller one further west, where there was a massive breakout back in 2019, late 2019, I want to say. It could be early 2020. None of this is really all that surprising. This is just seems to have been the best coordinated, most successful, and therefore most violent attack yet. And obviously the most sustained level of violence between those inside the prison, ISIS supporters or fighters outside the prison and the SDF. That's helpful, Leah. But I I wonder too, if we could go back a bit and just give us sort of the Cliff Notes version of how we even got to the place where the SDF is detaining, you know, alleged ISIS fighters in a, a former school with you know limited security, people crammed in a room. Give us a, a tiny bit of sort of the long-winded arc of, of how it came to be that the SDF had custody of these people and that it was the SDF alone, basically, who's responsible for, for their security. Yeah, so uh, the SDF is uh, a coalition of, of militias, essentially, that were partners with the United States, in in fighting ISIS very successfully. So when ISIS was losing territory, as I mentioned earlier, and they were, you know, basically streaming out of Bagus at the end of in March of 2018, um, they were being taken into custody. This was being done by both American forces who were on the ground and, and the Kurdish forces as well, and being placed into either detention camps so if they were women and children, essentially, they were be, being placed in camps and you know, fighting age males were essentially being put into prisons. And as we talked about, uh, men under 12 also seemed to be separated out and put, put into the prisons as well. And so basically, all of those who were in northeastern Syria supporting ISIS, be it their family members, children or, or fighters, were largely rounded up and uh, placed into makeshift detention centers or makeshift camps. And so now we have massive uh, one massive camp um, of women and children. I think the numbers now is about 65,000. It had swollen to over 70,000 at one point, about half of whom are, are children. The majority of women and children in those camps are actually either Syrians or Iraqis. Um, but about 15% are those who came from elsewhere across the world. And then again, um, the prisons hold those those fighters, again, largely Syrian and Iraqi males. But again, we do have 
Western and European and, and fighters from North Africa and the Caucasus, et cetera. And so as they got rounded up and put into these detention facilities and we just decided that ISIS had been defeated and the U.S. Uh, withdrew forces, the SDF were ultimately left holding the bag. And that bag was about 70,000 ISIS supporters and fighters. And they've had some support from the international community, obviously from human rights organizations as well who are working in these camps. But essentially, it's been left to the Kurds who, I should add, lost over 10,000 people in the fighting um, against ISIS. The Kurds who were the, the, the victims of ISIS control and violence to ultimately care for, um, house, feed, and to an extent protect um, to the extent that they can these ISIS supporters, family members, and fighters for the last three years. And Louisa, you mentioned that you had been to the prison, I think you said in 2019, right? Could you talk a bit about like what you saw when you were there and even just a sense of what the sort of demographics of the prison felt like back then? So we went, as you say, in 2019, kind of during the the Turkish invasion of northeast Syria. And it's really an experience, I think, that, that, that stays with me. You really start to get a sense of the scale when you see the, the CCTV, the CCTV rooms that the guards operate. And you see bank after bank of cameras showing the cells. The men are the men and the boys are in these bright orange jumpsuits, very reminiscent of Guantanamo. And then in turn, reminiscent of the same types of jumpsuits that ISIS copied for their execution videos. Now the alleged ISIS members are wearing them again in, in these prisons. The overcrowding was, at that point, I would say extreme. I understand that it has diminished somewhat in in the intervening period, but people were packed so tightly that often they were draping limbs across each other. People who sort of got up and tried to totter across the room to, to get a plastic bag or whatever, they, they hang their possessions on the wall. You'd see them sort of wobble and almost fall sometimes. And that's an illustration of how how packed it was. In the prison ward, which is downstairs, which is effectively a sort of a dormitory wing, people were still clearly very, very wounded. It was about six months after the end of the battle for Baguz and people had lost limbs in place of their limbs. They had metal pins. We saw people who did not appear to be in particularly good mental health. It was very, there were some incredibly distressed people in there. But really, the most shocking thing we saw was was the kids. You know, when you when you walk into this this dormitory, what you, what they've done to sort of keep it quote unquote safe is there's a you sort of walk into a, a bit of a cage, and in front of you is the dormitory, but there there are bars between you and and the men. And myself and my photographer Alice Martins were were scanning the room, and suddenly one by one we we were seeing children. The youngest we met was ten years old. We we spoke to them. It was very unclear, as I say, why they were there. Because when the, the battlefield was cleared, of course, some people went to camps and some people went to prisons. No one appears to know why. And they were certainly in a state of distress. One of them asked us privately if we could help them be, be moved to a child-only cell. There were rumours at the time that there was uh, sexual violence against the young boys. Subsequently, that did happen. The, the boys in the North Wing, the, the miners who are in the North Wing where the standoff have been, have been moved there, kind of out of sight from the media precisely because there was an outcry after this, that, that there were kids in the general population. But yeah, as I say, it's a pretty 
desolate place and one where you really feel that the world has turned its back. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing, and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I didn't visit the prison, but I visited the camps in 2019. And the feeling I had when I left is that ISIS is not defeated. They're just being held back behind these very flimsy and makeshift security perimeters. And, you know, until we've actually addressed that fact, ISIS lives, breathes, survives um, in these people and in these either camps or prisons. Yeah. And and to that point, I'll open this up to either of you. So Louisa, you were there in 2019 at that point, was there any sort of vision as to what might be the end game for the people detained in the prison, right? Like, I know there have been a series of different plans, most of which have completely collapsed about, you know, judicial process for these people or, you know, attempts to send them back to their home country. What was, in 2019, what was sort of the, the vision of what might happen to the people that I gather have just more or less ended up staying there? If I'm honest, I don't think there was an end game then, and I don't think there's an end game now. You know, the population has certainly diminished because the Iraqis and other governments have been slowly taking their people back. But for a lot of governments, they've just left their people there. And the process to even find out how or why or how many is incredibly untransparent. Um, governments tend to be more preoccupied with domestic concerns, right? Without with seeming strong on security. And being strong on security and through that framework, through that lens is not bringing these guys back. And I don't see that a huge amount has changed. I've been asking in recent days in Iraq where I, where I live, um, you know, whether this is likely to, to accelerate the transfers of Iraqi detainees, for example, because, you know, Iraq shared as a, shares a border with Syria. It's very, it's clearer than ever that these prisons are not secured. A lot of the people, some of the people we saw in the videos of escapees were Iraqi and you know, we've been saying to the officials here, is there a plan? What are you going to do? But the problem is that in the one country that has taken a large number of people from the region, or one of the main countries to take a large number of people, they have no capacity because they themselves are also dealing with legacy prisoners from the Islamic State. They're also dealing with foreigners in their prisons, and there's no space. So Leah, this is maybe, I don't know, the third or fourth time that we've talked on the Lawfare podcast about this very issue. But that's Louisa gave a helpful sense of of how Iraq has been dealing with this. Give us a sense of sort of the the non action 
on behalf of European countries and the scale of the problem to the extent that we know of, of European foreign fighters detained in these camps and prisons? Yeah, so I would just say at the beginning, we did see a number of states like Kosovo and Kazakhstan make large efforts to repatriate significant numbers of their population. And then since then, the lack of action or the focus has really been on the fact that Western nations, Western European countries, uh, the United States, Canada um, in particular, have not made any real efforts to repatriate the women, children, or men. The United States, I will say, has made significant efforts to repatriate, to prosecute all those that they want to prosecute, um, including some from other states. So they've repatriated, well, that's not even the right word. They've essentially brought Canadians and UK citizens to the United States to face prosecution in the U.S. courts for their crimes with ISIS. Um, But we're not seeing significant efforts um, by any other country, Western country, to do that. When we do see repatriations, they tend to be small numbers, ones and twos of children, mostly orphaned children in particular. And we have seen states really push back against legal challenges that assert that states have any obligation to repatriate their citizens who are in these camps. And I don't see that changing. There is no um, political appetite for this at all domestically and very little to be gained domestically from from doing so, even though we know (laughs) that there are thousands and thousands of children living in either prisons or in camps in conditions that do not withstand scrutiny under humanitarian conditions. You know, the the SDF uh, and the AANES, you know, basically said we're doing the best we can, but they don't claim to be able to meet the standards um, needed, you know, for humanitarian conditions. And they are consistently asking the international community, not just to repatriate, but if you're not going to repatriate, you know, help us provide safety, security, nutrition, health care. You know, we are still going through a global pandemic that hasn't, you know, changed. And we're dealing with people in really squalid conditions here. We're very, very lucky that given the transmission of COVID, it hasn't had huge outbreaks in these camps, but that was certainly a worry at the beginning. But the administration in Syria and Syria, Northeastern Syria has basically um, been left on their own to deal with this, despite the fact that, you know, we, we relied on them to defeat this threat that we, we accepted was an existential threat to global security. But once, you know, they were safely behind bars, we walked away. If I might just add, you know, I speak to a lot of people from, from European countries, from North America, who will say, you know, these citizens chose to go to Syria. They chose to go to Iraq. Why should we bring them back? You know, they turned their backs on us. They're not our problem anymore. And I think what that often overlooks is is the long-term Western role on, on getting these countries to, to the situation in the first place. Because, of course, the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq, for example, was a sort of a very important moment in the destabilization of this part of the region. It led to the rise the rise of precursor organizations to ISIS. And the 
forces that now pick up the pieces from the rise and fall of ISIS are the same forces operating with this heavily weakened capacity, the same states operating within the conditions that have developed in the 19 years since 2003. They often lack capabilities. They're often very corrupt. Often they're not really kitted out for the type of fighting that they're meant to be doing. And, you know, we look at why are ISIS somewhat resurging in Syria? It is precisely because the forces are not really capable or they only have a military solution to what to do. They are unable to deal with the same socioeconomic conditions that led to the group's rise in the first place. And it's going to happen again. And I think that when we look at these countries and we say, why should we take them back? We should take them back, I would argue, because our governments were partially responsible for how we got into this mess in the first place. And Leah, on top of that, could you talk a bit about, you've both sort of alluded to this at different points, what's the security risk of failing to repatriate or just sort of letting the SDF be responsible for what seems at this point like indefinite detention of large amounts of of ISIS fighters? I think the obvious one is that the next time a prison break of this nature is more successful or leads to catastrophic loss of life. And that would be a huge, huge victory for ISIS. It would certainly put them back on the map. I can't imagine the propaganda and, you know, a victory of that nature would give to the movement who, you know, continues to try and recruit. I can tell you here in Canada, we just had to issue two terrorism peace bonds to young people because of alleged association with ISIS. ISIS continues to have a draw across the world. Um, So that would be a a huge propaganda victory for ISIS should they be successful. And obviously then that creates instability, further instability in the region if you have these uh, fighters rejoining ISIS and ISIS feeling reinvigorated, uh, which we're already seeing in, in one particular region in Syria. So the other thing I will say is that this, from a secure human security standpoint, is that the longer that these people languish inside these poor squalid camps, the more likely that we're going to see people, you know, with serious diseases, uh, malnutrition, mental illness, you're basically condemning an entire generation of children. We're talking about 30,000 children here who have no capacity for education. They're essentially being raised to an extent by ISIS supporters, right, right, with really any outside kind of influence at all. And the conditions as like, it's been three years, they're not getting better. You know, so disease, mental illness, lack of capacity, really, you know, you're condemning these children to having no options at a future either. So long-term security issues are there, even if ISIS isn't successful. You know, I think that Another part of this picture, of course, comes with people who maybe are from Syria or are from Iraq who who have been in these camps, have been in these prisons, but have subsequently left. They've been allowed back into their local communities. And, and what happens next? A lot of the people that we have met who have been who have been able to come home in some way, shape or form, you know, they're back in their houses. They're they're not being attacked by by you know by the communities around them who suffered vastly at the hands of the group that these people allegedly joined, or at least who they they lived with for a time. But they're not being welcomed either. 
you know, people say that they would not invite these people over for a meal. They would not let their children play with them. And over the long term, dynamics like this and schism, I mean, schisms that happened far beyond before this, but, but dynamics which, which, like this, which persist, are leading to long term social divisions. Again, the likes of which the SCF do not appear and, the, and their partner um, self-administration do not appear to have the capacity to solve. And while these divisions fester, you know, even if they don't lead in the long term to the ISIS 3.0 that you will hear about a lot, they will lead to significant civilian harm. They will lead to people being ostracized to the point that they don't have access to to basic services. They will be ostracized to the point where maybe kids don't feel they can go to school, have an education, people can't get jobs. And in the long term, from the perspective of civilian harm, that really isn't good. Do we know, Louisa, in, in the context of the immediate attempt to quell what had happened last week, how much were Western countries involved in in getting things back down to a level of relative stability, right? So there's this sort of abandonment on the level of detention policy, but has there been a sort of corresponding effort to remediate the the immediate problem at hand? So from what we understand, the US-led coalition was pretty instrumental to, to the extent that it was launching quite a lot of airstrikes, both in the prison complex and outside the perimeter They also had ground forces helping secure the perimeter at a certain point. So, you know, they were there. They were there with boots on the ground. They were there with bombs in the air. And that is something that they've shown up to do time and time again when it comes to the fight against ISIS. But, you know, it's not clear what else they're going to offer. You know, it's not clear what training they're going to offer the SDF. It's not clear, you know, how they're going to help the SDF start to patch the holes which are leading to this increase in attacks. You know, if you look at why ISIS in Syria specifically is is in the position it's in, it's because actually, you know, this is a country that is controlled by multiple forces. It's, it's of course, ruled by the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, but it also has this enclave where the Kurdish-led authorities operate. And while the SDF and the coalition were somewhat successful in pushing ISIS out of there a couple of years ago, and they pushed them into central Syria, government-held Syria, once the government effort got a bit more successful, ISIS sort of basically just came right back and came into the Northeast. And during that time, because the SDF has not really been very successful at healing these social divisions and sort of trying to cultivate the intelligence networks that it would need, it's come back to an area that is far more fertile for them to be able to conduct the sort of operations that they have. And that is a big question that the coalition and international community will need to help with. And I don't see that they have an answer to it. So I, I want to wrap up by asking you both the same two-part question. So on the one hand, do you anticipate what's happened over the past week actually changing anything? And on the other hand, if you, you know, if you had your druthers and you could really you know, have this have an impact on long-term policy toward detention in, in northeastern Syria and toward defense policy in northeastern Syria, what would you hope that the real takeaway would be and the, the sort of inflection point might be as a result of this? Louisa, we can start with you. I don't think that anything has significantly changed as a result of this prison attack, because I think that this prison attack was a symptom of where ISIS are, rather than a sign that they are changing. But if I were a policymaker, you know, I would want the attention right now to be on bringing my nationals home, 
particularly the children and trying to identify where the partner forces and the partner governments can be helped in sort of starting to heal these severe societal divisions, trying to create a better economic environment, social environment and political environment. And of course, as international policymakers, that's always going to be hard because these are sovereign countries and often the ways in which foreign governments engage with these host governments actually exacerbates the problem. So I suppose I would ask them to take a step back and, or if I were them, I would want to take a step back and think, how can we really help? And Leah? So I'd like to think that policymakers, and I'm thinking especially in the Canadian context, will look at this and say, those children that are in these camps and prisons that are our citizens are at real risk. And that should reaffirm the level of risk to them and be a change in circumstance that um, refocuses the efforts on, on bringing them into safety and security. However, I suspect that governments will instead use this as an example of why Syria is an unstable region and they can't possibly send their their folks, their consular people, their mission staff into the region in order to assist or pull them out. That has been the excuse, I know from Canada's point of view especially, that it's simply too dangerous for us to go there to do anything about this problem. And unfortunately, I think that this will, instead of showing why we need to take the safety and security of these victims, these child victims, even more seriously, it'll just be a way for them to double down on their excuses not to do anything. Bigger picture policy-wise, you know, I'd like to think that this would lead the United States to maybe increase their support and presence once again in the region and bring some coalition partners along with them. But given all of the political dynamics and what else is going on around the world, again, I'm not optimistic. I was speaking with a friend about this issue earlier and their response to this was not now ISIS, I'm tired. And I think that really... um, does capture the sentiment is that there's just so much else going on in the world that seems to pose a more direct consequence for those of us in the West, that I am not optimistic that we're really going to see anything happen as a result of this. And I think we'll look back and say, once again, I told you so. And on that cheerful note, we are going to have to leave it there. Um, Leah and Louisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo for her audio engineering. And as always, to our producer and editor, Jen Patiahau. Your music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. And please do consider sharing us on whatever social media app you choose. As always, thanks so much for listening.